0: reading is taken from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 15. (laughs) Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 3,000 litres of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? 30 tonnes of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill, I'll make it 24. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Please keep your Bibles open.
1: So thank you, Bim, very, very much for that reading. And uh, as we come into that new Bible passage, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 15, let me ask this simple question. What's the point of money? I guess that's the question that's worth everyone here asking. Because, however skint you might be, everybody's got some money. What's the point? But your average punter will say it's to pay the bills and to have a good time. It depends on who you ask. That's what most non Christians would say. Ask the Christian, and they will say, "What's the point of money?" Oh must be to give some of it away, but mainly to pay the bills and have a good time. In other words, there's not much difference really between Christians and non-Christians when it comes to what we spend on. If you're a good uh, uh, rugby enthusiast, you remember the days in Twickenham when Wales would uh, turn up to play and uh, invariably there would be this uh, 30,000 male voice choir around the grounds singing this very famous hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Redeemer. And the last verse of that hymn goes like this, uh, When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside, death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Now you think that's a hymn about heaven. And most Christians... Well, we love singing about heaven, uh, but actually uh, we'd like to take our money with us, wouldn't we? We know we can't, but we'd like to. And therefore, you could actually sing that last line, Land me safe. (laughs) Meaning the thing that contains all our money on Canaan's side. Let me take it with me if I can. In other words... Christians can be as phony about all we sing about heaven but really what we want is a cushy number on earth. And so very interesting you might notice that Jesus is talking to his disciples in verse 1 not to the rank and file members of uh, the general public He's talking to his disciples in verse 1 and when you get to the end of this little story you notice that it's the Pharisees, the church leaders of his day, that loved money in verse 14. And I take it, if Jesus is saying that this is something important to the disciples, important to the Pharisees, I guess it's probably a little bit important to us. I wonder how many of you, if you were really honest, would say, oops, I wouldn't have come to church if I knew that was going to be the reading today, Uh, because it is searching, isn't it? when people talk to us about how we spend. But what to do? If you're going through Luke's Gospel bit by bit and last week we finished chapter 15 and we open up chapter 16 this week and that's what we're reading, hey, we've got to have a think about that, don't we? We can't duck it. If you're going through the Bible bit by bit, you've got no choice. So here goes. First... Let's learn about this dodgy teacher. Because Jesus' story is about a hearer who is as corrupt as they come. And this guy is going to be our instructor for the evening. We've got to learn from him, the most dishonest man in Luke's Gospel. You can see from... uh, Verse 1, that he is managing someone else's money, but he is helping himself to truckloads of it. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So now this dishonest manner, manager discovers that the owner is onto him. And so he comes up with this very crafty and clever way of an unemployed man, in fact actually an unemployable man, eating out for the rest of his life. So he has got to be clever to manage that. Because essentially he goes for a career change. Instead of making money for himself, he sets out on a new career of making friends for himself. He goes to everyone who owes his master and asks them to settle up at very reasonable reduced rates. And so now they owe him. I don't know if you've done the maths, but uh, the second one owed something like uh, 6,000 measures of wheat. Now, he's never going to eat his way through all of that. And so the master's happy, and they're very happy, or the, the debtor is happy, and they'll be very happy. There won't be any resentment about giving him a meal every now and then. Because he's saved from so much. He can go from house to house because he's done so many people so many favours. Now look, the one who owns the money in the first place, he must have been a successful businessman as well or else he wouldn't have had that much. But in verse 8, he himself sees that he's been class. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are people of the light. And so the man's been brought in as a person of this world to teach the children of the light, Becantry Church, not because he's dodgy, but because he understands how he has been given money and how with it he can win future friends. So that's the career change that we're all here to learn tonight, how to make future friends. Let's go and see how very simply that might happen. But before we do, let's take an honest look at ourselves for a moment. Uh, we would, most of us, call ourselves Christians. We are meant to be more future-focused than anyone else. But it is so easy, isn't it, for Christians to get the future wrong. So we can have this daydream of the future that essentially is going to be paradise and perfection. So, heaven is all about... Uh, Uh, a wonderful, uh, perfect place, the ideal environment with a good chef. And things like Ebola, if you're into dramatic illness, or simple arthritis, if you're wanting to get rid of the ordinary aches and pains of life, all those things will be taken away. We have this view of heaven. It will be that kind of place. Or we have a view of heaven which might be one gear higher which is a wonderful view of heaven with Jesus in it the most loving, the most perfect man that ever lived and we will be in his company how wonderful is that? but that's where the vision can end just me and Jesus and the way I get to him is by simply asking me, asking him to forgive me, and that's it, I've checked in. It's a bit like catching a plane, isn't it? You don't get a ticket through the post anymore. You check in online, and your seat has your name on it. Well, if credit cards these days have a one touch payment system, our Christians have a one prayer booking system. You pray the prayer. And that's it. Entrance guaranteed. Now, does it really work like that? You pray one prayer, and you're in. Jesus says, actually, that might be the case. But I'll show you who is really in. And the way Jesus shows who's really one of his people is simply to give them money. And then see how they use it. And how Christians use money will give him and themselves and actually anybody else a good view of how much they value grace. Because money helps us to value grace in two ways. One, it shows us how we think of our money. So the money in your bank account or in your wallet or in your purse. Right, let me ask you, whose is it? The reason the manager in our story was shrewd is because his starting point was to see that it wasn't his money. So he could be as generously liked. It wasn't his in the first place. That if we think that our money is earned by works and ours by works, then we will want all the benefit of it for ourselves. But if we think our money is grace, given to us freely, then we'll rejoice in grace, constantly seeing that it isn't ours but belongs to God and is his gift. And that's why, in case you ever wondered, the Old Testament instructs God's people to give away 10% of their income, sometimes called a tithe. It's really a working test to see who we think owns our money. If we think we do because we have worked and slaved for it, then look, giving away 10% is far, far too much because we're going to be 10% down at the end of the day if that's how we see it. But if we think that this is all God's grace piled into our possession, then 10% is very cheerfully given because we're still 90% up. If you think it's God's money, you're 90% up. If you think it's your money, you're 10% down, you won't want to do it. And it shows you your view of grace. Actually, the New Testament is what builds up our picture of God's grace even more. So New Testament generosity is actually greater than Old Testament generosity if you look at the people give, giving in the New Testament. See, how we see our money is a direct reflection on how we are those who look at God and his grace. So, how we been future friends has got to start by asking, how do we see our money? Is it ours or his? If it is his, we'll do what he wants with it. And 10% is no Testament uh, guideline. Secondly, it shows us how we think of heaven. Uh, the greatness of heaven is not just that we will be there, but that others will be there, and more than we usually imagine. We usually imagine that Christians, perhaps in our family, will be there, and Christians in our church will be there, but Jesus wants to ask us to imagine a new group of people who are there, a group of people who are going to be there because they've been helped by our money. That group will show us how much we love grace by showing us how much we want others to receive grace. You see, it is very easy, isn't it, for Christians to speak about grace very lightly but in the end to do it in a way that covers up our greed so we can say to ourselves something like this I'm saved by grace therefore it doesn't matter how I use my money it really doesn't because I'm saved whatever I do and therefore, how I use my money doesn't come into it. I'm saved by grace. Is that how it works? Well, read through the chapter and you will find that at the end of chapter 16 is a man who refers to Abraham as his father. Now, Abraham trusted God. He is, if you like, the very first believer in the Bible. And this man would regard himself as one of Abraham's children because heaven was promised to Abraham's children. Except when he dies, he doesn't get there. He spends his money on himself and he ignored a beggar called Lazarus who was sitting on his gate. And so when he died, he had no Lazarus to invite him into eternal dwellings. can't read that story without realizing that there is a link between his eternal situation and the way he spent his money on himself now you might not like the thought of that but put it into a pipe and smoke it because it's in the Bible and that's actually what it says now let's get away from the nice easy glib smooth talking I'm in heaven aren't I guaranteed given not when Jesus tells us in verse 13 that money will actually tell us who our God is no one can serve two masters either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve both God and money so a person understands grace we'll understand that, uh, and we'll look at God as a very generous master that they can trust. But our trouble is phony grace. And phony grace says that we're serving one master when really we're trying to serve two. God and money. So we say we're serving God because we're very happy to do the church stuff as long as it doesn't cost us anything. So we're happy to pray. We're happy to uh, read the Bible. We're happy to talk about God just like the Pharisees did. Uh, They did all those things. But we can do that whilst at the same time having a big time worry going on in our heads that the money is short. And so therefore our waking moments go on sorting out those money problems than living with a view of heaven in which we invest in order that others are there. And I think verse 9 is about living like that where people are there in our minds and our imagination inviting us into their eternal dwellings. So in other words, imagine what it would be like to get to heaven and someone comes to you and says, Look, I know you, don't I? You're the reason why I'm here. Your money allowed a Christian missionary to come into our village and tell us about Jesus, and you've got to come in so that I can tell you the difference it made from that day onwards. Or another person will come along and say, Hey, I know you. You're the reason I'm here. Your money put a roof over my head. Say, it taught me how to trust God at a time when I had nothing. You wouldn't have known it, but every day since then, I've been praising God for you for the rest of my life, for what you did. Another person comes along and says, I know you, you're the reason I'm here. You put a gospel worker in our estate. And as a result of that, I came to understand Jesus in a new and completely different way. And now, every time I think Jesus is glorious... I can't stop thinking that you're the one that helped me to see that with your gift see that's the new vision the career change as we think of using our money and having that effect for the whole of eternity as you get into conversations with the people that you've helped by what you've given. That's the new vision as we think about how to use our money from this passage. So what's to take home for us? Well, if you're new, maybe you can think of Christianity about, as a way of getting a leg up from some problem that's getting you down. But Jesus interestingly talks about serving a new master. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but money can be our master in this sense. Even though most of us don't think it is, if we're really honest, isn't it true that we think our problems will either go away or somehow become more bearable if only we just had a little bit more of it? You see, when we start thinking like that, we're essentially giving our money godlike powers to rescue us and save us from difficult situations. It very quickly becomes a second master. That's actually more important to us than the first. Now, friends, going for a little God like that, because we think money will rescue us, is ultimately likely to leave us as impoverished in the future Mm -hmm. as this monopoly money will at the end of the monopoly game. The money we have now will buy us plastic houses but in an hour's time the game will be over. Is it a good thing to turn it into heavenly currency before it's too late? Or else all that will be worth nothing. i just read on to the end of Luke's uh, chapter 16 to see how horrible that would be. What it's like for a man who had monopoly money, but then died outside heaven. What happens if you're someone who's used to going to church? Maybe you've heard endless sermons on what money should be used for. Isn't it a bit of a worry when we read verse 14 and see how it's mainly church people who resisted what Jesus had to say about money? Uh, Verse 15 shows us that they liked a reputation for being godly, but presumably they preferred to do it in other areas, like praying lots and knowing lots, rather than giving lots. So it seems like verse 15 is really saying, look guys, you're seeking to be impressive in the wrong areas, but ultimately your way of godliness is to try and serve two masters. Don't do that choose one church people that's our problem the two master problem and we need to resolve it believers what happens if you're someone who really does want to uh, follow Jesus into new life well it means following him into new life in this area Don't we need to keep repenting that we're ultimately no different to non-Christians when it comes to thinking about money a lot of the time? Why don't we see it as his money to be used in the way that he directs? And if scripture commends tithing, then part of our discipleship will be to practice tithing. But not just in a, yeah, I'll give my 10% away, but I'll give my 10% away with this dream in my mind. That when I get into God's eternal future, there will be people who will be having these amazing conversations with me because even though I didn't quite know exactly how the money got to them, Nonetheless, in the providence of God, he used it and drew others who will then draw us into their eternal dwellings and speak about how wonderfully God used what we've given to bring others to himself. Well, let's pray that God will help us to uh, live in that and then we'll take questions and uh, think a bit more. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for all that you give us. We want to think of ourselves as owning nothing, and of you owning everything. And rather than worry about money, please help us to think of welcome instead as we grow our vision of heaven and seeing there be others who welcome us apart from the Lord Jesus himself. So help us to think about living in the joy of others as we glorify Jesus who himself gave up everything so that strangers will live with him in heaven. Help us to be like Him, because we ask this in His name.
0: Amen.